Kneel before Zod! You can't go! All the plants are gonna die! I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil! Don't touch it! The name's Pliskin. No! Welcome to a very special Vintage Video Patreon pick, where our patrons at the $100 tier are invited to request any pre-80s title they'd like for a custom review from the Vintage Video team, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today, Louis Letizia has asked us to review Coma, released January 6, 1978. It was written by Michael Crichton, based on the novel by Robin Cook, directed by Crichton, and released by United Artists. In 1977, Robin Cook's novel, Coma, was published. Before it was even released, Crichton was already attached to direct the film adaptation. Director Crichton and author Cook both came from medical backgrounds and actually met at La Jolla's Salk Institute, where Crichton was doing postdoctoral work and Cook was visiting as a Navy physician. It seems like the creatives and the money people had different intentions for the film. Crichton specifically avoided graphic surgery scenes, not wanting to scare people away from seeking medical care, while producer Martin Ehrlichman wanted Coma to do for hospitals what Jaws had done to beaches. <laughs> that seems <laughs> a terrible strategy. Across the country, physicians and hospital administrators have confirmed that organ donor numbers declined, and some hospitals even had to remove the number 8 from their operating rooms for their more paranoid patients. Conversely, eye and kidney donations increased in the wake of the film's release, possibly due to increased awareness of organ donation programs. For the lead role of Susan Wheeler, offers were made first to Demon Seed's Julie Christie, who turned it down, and then Farrah Fawcett, who was contractually committed to Charlie's Angels and had to pass. Yeah, this character felt to me like a Julie Christie. Yeah. Like, uh, I mean, uh, Genevieve Bujold is basically a Julie Christie. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, not, not in to, the book, she's a she's like a blonde feminist character. I, th I think Farrah Fawcett fits the character more in the book than what they went with. But yeah, it, it totally would have worked with uh, with Julie Christie. Forgot to mention Michael Crichton. Do you know how tall that man is? No. He is six nine. Is he really? This is a picture of him standing next to Spielberg, who's who's a, a shorter yeah. guy, but like yeah. still, isn't that insane? That's crazy. I Just didn't know that. Just towers over people. Yeah. That's how he got in character of the dinosaurs when he's writing those books. <laughs> Chasing Spielberg around, stop it, Michael. We've clocked Crichton at 50 miles an hour. You've got a Crichton. <laughs> we have a Crichton. Even though the character in the book is a woman, producers briefly considered casting a male star like Paul Newman for the part. Even Genevieve Bujold said she pictured Newman in the part. But Crichton was insistent on casting a woman because films were failing to portray professional women this way. Writer. I, I love that, actually, yeah. because I was thinking about how incredibly progressive it was to have a woman doctor and also the woman doctor being the central character right. who's not crazy, who's actually right about all this. Yeah, stuff. and and I think it also feeds into, and I, and I think it's more spoken about now, the uh, sense that a lot of women get when they speak with medical professionals that they're treated like they're crazy or that they don't know what they're talking about. Oh, yeah. And so it's interesting to transpose that experience onto a doctor who right. who you already know knows better than the average patient and right. is still being treated the same way well and and because like, they treat her like a patient in the whole film well and the frustration i think too that like most of the females in the medical profession are nurses yeah. and the doctors are able to talk down to the nurses and they and they frequently do but he you know like he even says at some point in this film like you know being frustrated about like, oh, if if he'd been in a relationship with a yeah, nurse instead, been, it wouldn't have been so hard. With a nurse, because she's too, like, you know, stubborn and hard-headed. Too dumb to argue with him. Yeah. If he'd picked a nurse. Well, he's a pretty big piece of shit, the first, the oh, first scene that we had with him. He's terrible. I was like, what? Yes. <laughs> Writer Ted Burkick felt the film's story bore too striking a resemblance to his screen treatment, Reincarnation, Inc., and filed a $10 million suit, which was eventually dismissed. Apparently, he tried again for a $75 million suit five years later and was dismissed again. $150 million. <laughs> Just, I'm going to keep, keep doubling going. it until you give it to me. Just double down every time. I learned this trick from play it to the bone. <laughs> keep doubling your bet and eventually you'll make all your money back. That's not how it works, sir. This is not roulette. 
Cook's novel was adapted again in 2012 by Ridley Scott and Tony Scott as an A&E miniseries. It stars Lauren Ambrose, Gina Davis, James Woods, Joseph Mazzello, Ellen Burstyn, and Richard Dreyfuss. Hmm. That's not very good. I watched it. Hmm. As the film opens, we see Genevieve Bujold as Dr. Susan Wheeler driving her convertible to her job at Boston Memorial Hospital. We see her finishing her rounds on the surgical floor, and then in a locker room later, we see her scrubbing up, and in the neighboring men's locker room, we see Michael Douglas as Dr. Mark Bellows doing the same. She preps for surgery, and we see her mid-operation, and then jump forward to Susan and Mark arriving home from work that night. They talk about how Mark is gunning for a promotion to chief medical resident. He asks Susan to grab him a beer while he hops in the shower, and she reminds him that they both just worked the same mm-hmm. shift, yeah. and he doesn't deserve the first shower any more than she does. Well, he says, can you get me a beer so I can take a shower before you get dinner started? I was like, wow. It's like a double. Yeah. Like, it's like, can you give me a beer so I can take a shower? I was like, okay, maybe, maybe. But then before you get dinner started, I was like, yeah. damn. She strips naked at light speed to beat him into the shower. I had a hard day, too. You can get in a shower faster than any person alive. Have a beer. You'll feel better. She asks him to heat up their dinner from the fridge while he struggles to relay the events of his day. She communicates very clearly that she doesn't want to talk about work, but he has nothing else to say. She dresses to leave against his protestations because he's still, for some reason, refusing to heat up their dinner. You don't want a lover. You want a goddamn wife. Isn't that what you want? Is, are you <laughs> criticizing me for the things that you also want? We can't both be the man, is what he's trying to say. <laughs> yeah, I feel like the obvious answer would have just been like, I'll get two beers, I'll meet you in the shower, Yeah. then we'll heat up the dinner. It's fine. When Susan gets home, her phone is ringing, but she doesn't get to it in time. The next day, in a break room crowded with doctors, Mark apologizes to Susan about last night, and she apologizes back, but then they launch right into another fight, because he wants to have lunch, and she has an aerobics class that she cares a lot about. We cut to the class, and the locker room after, she talks to her good friend Nancy Greenlee. It seems Nancy has come down with a case of baby, and has scheduled a DNC at Susan's hospital. Uh, but again, this guy, like, I thought he was going to end up being the, the bad guy, just the way he's treating her. I mean, Michael <laughs> Douglas is terrifying sometimes. But, I, I mean, yeah, but I, it, I'm just, I guess I was just surprised by how poorly the film was portraying him, and I and I don't fully no, know if they did it on purpose or if it was just the 80s. I, I think it, it was on purpose, and or I think they wanted point, you to I think guess. that this girl was on her own. They wanted you to think that he could believably turn on her and she was just yeah. the only person on the right side of this situation. Okay. Nancy Greenlee is nervous about her upcoming DNC and Susan assures her that it's a fairly simple procedure. We cut right to operating room eight where an anesthesiologist is teaching two interns the process. They have meters to regulate gas and hoses run through a port in the wall to an external supply. Nancy is wheeled in and officially put under just before they get started. The surgeon performing the procedure is weirdly open with the attending interns. Actually, what I'm going to do is get her out of a hell of a mess. She's pregnant. She doesn't want her husband to know. It's none of my business. I'm just her surgeon. I don't run her life. It's like, then why are you talking about it? Yeah. Stop talking, sir. It's not like her husband's in the room and I was about to blurt it out to him. To the eyes of the surgeon, everything goes exactly according to plan, but the anesthesiologist has a momentary scare when the patient's oxygen is dropping precipitously. It eventually writes itself, and they wrap everything up when the anesthesiologist checks the patient's eyes and they are fixed and dilated, which is apparently a big deal. Mark overhears some doctors discussing... Well, is it the way he says, he's like, oh no, the pupils! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's, it's like Dr. Zoidberg just entered the scene. <laughs> yeah, this line read of that is just very unusual. Mark overhears some doctors discussing Nancy's condition and recognizes his girlfriend's good friend from aerobics. The consensus at the moment seems to be that this is an anesthetic reaction. Mark lets Susan know what's going on and calls her to intensive care. The doctors tell Mark that Nancy is officially in a vegetative state before Susan arrives. Susan reflects on her recent reassurance to Nancy that this was a simple procedure and there was nothing to worry about. She asks what kind of tests they've done and what might have happened, but doesn't get any satisfying answers. She takes Nancy's chart to go over it in private, and Mark finds her just outside the coma ward. 
She remarks casually that the charts are normal and Nancy must have fallen into the rare percentage of patients who suffer unexpected complications from the anesthetic. Weirdly though, Mark is treating her like she's being hysterical. For being especially calm, he's treating her like she's being insane. Right, right. It's well documented that telethane causes liver damage and severe side effects in a small percentage of surgical cases. That's just uh, the risk of anesthesia. Oh. Honey, I know you're upset. I'm not upset. You think because I'm a woman, I'm going to be upset. I'm fine, Mark. They're both a bit confused to see that Nancy has been tissue typed before her DNC, which is not standard procedure. The detail doesn't sit well with Susan, and she decides to check in with the lab to determine who ordered that. Mark reminds her that the lab closed at six, but she wanders in anyway and finds one of the techs having sex with a nurse. Consulting her chart, the man tells Susan that nobody ordered this tissue type and that the hospital computer system is programmed to order them randomly as a quality check, which is then verified against independent lab's findings. Next, Susan finds someone working for the hospital's computer team and talks the man into providing her a list of all these surgical patients who left the hospital in comas last year. Yeah, he's like, I can't give you certain information. I can't give you this. I can't give you that. Then here give me it a, all is. Yeah, here, give me a list of everyone who's been in a coma. Sure. It seems like he's he thinks he's going to get something in return for this from her because he ends the conversation with, so are you married or what's the story here? Where, where are we going after this? Yeah. It's like, you're probably still going to work. I'm going to go read this list you gave me. She's shocked at the length of the list. The next day, Mark is horrified to learn that she has violated hospital protocol to acquire this information. He reminds her that they work for a huge hospital, and this many comas a year is barely outside the normal averages. In addition, she's been neglecting her regular duties this morning. You missed your rounds this morning. You didn't scrub in a Chandler's subtotal gastrectomy. I had to do something, Mark. Well, why the hell don't you do your job? Doing her rounds later, she talks a team of doctors through the case of patient Sean Murphy, played by a pre-magnum and completely adorable Tom Selleck, here for a meniscectomy. His charisma radiates throughout the hospital, and it's almost crazy they didn't try to force him into more scenes. Susan is paged by Dr. Harris, the chief of medicine, played by Richard Widmark. Richard Widmark. <laughs> he tries to instill in her the seriousness of computer data privacy to the state of Massachusetts. The programmer she spoke with last night was put on probation and then ratted her out. She presents Dr. Harris with the list, but he doesn't even look at it and reiterates the seriousness of her infraction. I certainly don't want to lose a good surgical resident. He suggests putting her in touch with the hospital therapist, Dick Moreland, and she turns down the offer, but he tells her that if she wants to keep her job, she'll see the shrink. We cut to her spilling her guts to a therapist about everything we've seen. The shrink is basically the hospital equivalent of an HR department and is just here to see what she knows and who she disclosed it to. And we cut right to Moreland telling Dr. Harris everything she said in session. Yeah, which is to me... 100% against the rules. Yeah, I mean, I guess you would have to report whether or not she's competent to continue to work right, as a right. surgeon. But he tells him way more information. Yeah. Later in the day, Susan seems to finally be recovering from everything when she spots Sean Murphy having suffered a similar reaction to anesthesia and unconscious on a gurney. The doctors encircling him discuss what went wrong. Among them is Rip Torn as Dr. George, the chief of anesthesiology. Oh, I thought you meant he ripped his torn. Oh, no. That's what's wrong with him. He must have ripped a torn. <laughs> They insist his oxygen levels were normal throughout the procedure, but his pupils were also fixed and dilated, which I guess suggests brain death, they mention here. Even Mark is surprised by this one. The doctors callously refer to the brain-dead patient as excellent teaching material. We can keep him alive, stable vital signs, a year, two years, indefinitely. <laughs> Just keep him alive forever for no reason. He's but dead already. Yeah, but it, it's weird that he says, like, one year, two years. Like, okay, that's not very long. Indefinitely. It's like, like that's like saying one, two, infinity. It's like, why, yeah. why, why did you start with such low numbers? One, two, infinity, and beyond. Susan is worried again, and Mark tells her to leave the worrying to the hospital review board. Ignoring the suggestion, Susan goes to see Dr. George in his office and accuses him flat out of missing some detail connecting the coma cases. He assures her the cases have nothing in common. Different doctors, different shifts, different patient ages. When Dr. George invites her to leave, we do get a quick insert of a maintenance man fixing an outlet and giving her a knowing glance. Later, Mark is horrified to hear that she not only approached Dr. George, but called him out on a potential mistake. George's wife is apparently super rich, and she's picking fights with the wrong people if she wants to keep her job. 
Mark is called in to meet with the higher-ups in charge of his pending promotion to chief resident. They've noticed that he holds some sway with Susan, and they would like her to drop her paranoid delusions about this coma conspiracy. You know, Mark, a good chief resident handles problems like this every day. Susan goes to check on Nancy again and finds she is due for transfer to the Jefferson Institute, but she's currently in autopsy. When we visit the Jefferson Institute later, it doesn't make a lot of sense that she would be sent there post-autopsy. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, that's a place for keeping people in comas. You're slicing her brain up downstairs right now. Well, I, I think that that's where she was intended to go. She was supposed go. to go. And instead they sent her to the autopsy? Because she no, died she, she first. Di she died, yeah. Oh, okay. They, they, they she didn't died get her... before transfer. Okay. But this guy... Is using a meat slicer to take slices of his of the brain? Yeah. Like, is mm. that standard pathology? I don't know. I you know, I have a feeling that if you went into a real morgue, there'd just be a lot of like like friggin' Herber Freight style tools. Yeah, just that stuff they being used use. for the wrong purpose. Well, uh, yeah, I mean that that makes sense to me. I just I I can't imagine that I mean, I would think that you'd have to freeze the brain first before you could take it yeah, to a for meat sure. slicer. Yeah. She heads down to speak with the coroner, and he's slicing her brain into sections like a delicious honey-baked ham. I don't know. They're definitely not uh, sandwich thickness. They're they're too thick. I read uh, somewhere. I, I don't know. Today. It depends on what kind of sandwich. <laughs> I, I heard today brains are like jello, and you can't pick them up in like one piece. Yeah. They would just slip through your fingers and mm. slough Well, that, I mean, general, generally in pathology overall, you, you freeze the tissue in order to get very thin slices of it because right. you're, lo you're looking for... But you lose the marbling if you freeze it. <laughs> <laughs> the marbling, the, is there a lot of fat in the brain? I don't I think there so. is. <laughs> Delicious brains. The brain parts look disturbingly real, so it must be cow brain or something. I'm assuming this is actual brain product. Mm. The coroner doesn't see anything to indicate a problem. Susan asks what someone might do to cause a coma on purpose. And the two coroners in the room, one of whom is a young Ed Harris, start pitching the perfect crime. We'd all make great murderers. I mean, who knows better about murder than a pathologist? <laughs> it sure keeps my wife in line. <laughs> Jesus Christ, Harris. <laughs> Suddenly, the first coroner seems to hit the nail on the head with the suggestion of carbon monoxide. Carbon monoxide? Sure. It's perfect. Anesthetist feeds the patient some carbon monoxide instead of oxygen. It's colorless, and it makes the blood very red, so the surgeon doesn't notice anything funny. But the brain dies from lack of oxygen. End of operation, patient doesn't wake up. The coroner doubts the use of carbon monoxide here because it's never the same doctor responsible for the hospital average 12 cases a year. We cut from here to Susan being chewed out again by Dr. Harris for bothering Dr. George with her theories. He warns her again to back off, but if anything, this will only further entice her investigation. I'm going to have to take this back. The brain is actually 60% fat. Is it? <laughs> Apparently. Oh. Uh, yeah. You're suddenly so, thinking about slices of brain. Now mm -hmm. I'm thinking that'll fry up real nice. <laughs> it reminds me of uh, which Hannibal sequel was that? Was it just called it, Hannibal? It was just Hannibal, yeah. Where Leota's eating his own brain? Yeah. She breaks down again, speaking of her friend Nancy Greenlee, and Dr. Harris moves to comfort her. He tells her to take the weekend off, and he'll smooth over the bad politics of her investigation. By the time she leaves his office, he believes he has manipulated her simple woman mind. Women. Christ. But he is in fact a dum-dum, and just gave her two full days to devote to her investigation. Out on the street at night, her car won't start, and she loses her shit against the side of it. She takes a bus, and just before it pulls away from the MTA station, a man in a coat and fedora tries to board behind her and just misses the vehicle. Later, she tells Mark everything, and again, he insists that she is just paranoid. Mark thinks they should use the free weekend for a vacation, but Susan thinks she's close to solving the whole thing. And they both occurred in OR8. OR8. What if... What if carbon monoxide were being pumped in OR8? What if that were true? He decides the fastest way to diffuse her paranoia is to disprove her theory, so they go to OR8 and verify that the tubes are secured safely to the wall port. Which is not proof enough. Yeah, it's you not, need to follow it the proof. whole way to the gas. Mark says 99% of the operations in this room have gone flawlessly, so it's not just a problem of the room, and she seems to discard her own theory. We cut to them running along a beach together and making out in the sand. On their eventual way back to town, they happen to pass the Jefferson Institute, <laughs> and Susan demands they pull over so she can see it for herself. Yeah. Okay, uh, but they don't. She doesn't really demand they pull over. Like, well, I, you see her arm shoot out the window, like mm -hmm. pull over now. Yeah, but the car like skids over to the side, right. like 
that's a weird reaction to I think, her I think doing she's that. screaming at him to, to do this, but we don't hear her. Yeah. She wants to see the facility for herself because Nancy was supposed to be transferred here. Not that she's here now, but she was intended to be transferred here. Mark drives her to the building's entrance, and this is actually the Xerox building in Lexington, Massachusetts, which is reminiscent of other evil buildings we've seen, like Demon Seed's Icon Institute or the DMI building from Looker. Susan walks right into the place and is greeted by Mrs. Emerson, played by Elizabeth Ashley. Susan doesn't bother with a fake name, but Emerson still assumes she's part of the tour group meant to see the facility on Tuesday. Susan asks if she can just do a quick tour today, but it's a no-go, so Susan tries to Karen her way in. May I speak with the senior physician in charge? There is no physician in charge. Well, then your supervisor. I have no supervisor. Who runs the staff? There is no staff. You mean you're here alone? Of course not. There are technicians, security people. I'm sure when you've taken the tour on Tuesday, it will all be clear to you. Well, that sure sounds like staff. <laughs> yeah. yeah. How is that not staff? Yeah. Someone someone is the head honcho here. Yeah. Is it and you? Is it you? <laughs> if it's you, let me in. She says to come back at 11 on Tuesday. The next day in the same crowded doctor break room, the maintenance guy from Dr. George's office tries to share some info with Susan. I heard what you said to Dr. George in the lab. I heard what you said to him. You're right. Right about what? Seeing how they do it. I know how it works. How what works? Before she can withdraw any more info, they are interrupted by another doctor asking her to scrub in on another surgery today. The maintenance guy, Kelly, says he'll show her tonight in the maintenance level of the building. That night, a suspicious man credited as Vince arrives to the maintenance area before Susan and suddenly dumps the maintenance man Kelly's water bucket over Kelly's head. What did you do that for? They said make it look like an accident. accident. This doesn't look like an accident. <laughs> Oh, that, that. he did this thing again where he dumps water over his head and then leaps at an electrical wall. <laughs> the man throws Kelly against a wall of electrical circuits, and he is quickly sparking and smoking. As Susan gets close to the area, the lights are flickering wildly, and she arrives just in time to see the last few seconds of his electrocution as he reaches out for her. One strand of the electrical arcing is going from the wall directly to one of his eyes. It's what? very cool. How did they do that? Did they just, just composite? They just draw that electrical thing in? Like, oh, I assume that it's actual electrical arcing from a different shot that it they looks great. comped mm -hmm. over it. Yeah. But is this what's in the hospital? Like a bunch of Frankenstein style switches yeah. on a switchboard? <laughs> yeah, that's mad, what they do. They're all mad it, scientists. It, 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 like even uh, when MacGyver blew quail into the electrical circuit right. board, it looked better than this. Yeah. We hard cut to the man being zipped into a body bag, and later, Susan explores the crime scene. She observes a gas tank left there by the assassin and wanders the floor looking for other clues. She finds an identical tank labeled unsafe and then follows the gas line running out of the tank. It meanders all around the facility and eventually even several floors up the building, and she climbs a ladder to follow it. Along the way, she removes her shoes and pantyhose to make the climbing easier, but then riskily leaves them behind as a clue to her discovery. I was really glad about this, though, because when I was watching the movie and she, she takes the shoes off because they're mm. terribly impractical, um, I was like, but the pantyhose are going to be so much more slippery. And then yeah. there she goes and takes them off. I'm like, good. Thank you, movie. Yeah. Doing it like you actually were doing this. For and us. I was like, how are you going to climb a ladder with a shirt on? Just keep going. <laughs> Isn't it hot in here? <laughs> Jesus. What are you doing, lady? The hose finally ends, not the pantyhose, the hose for the gas, <laughs> ends at a small electrical switch device in the ceiling right outside OR8. Later, she gets a security guard to let her into Dr. George's office to get the patient files he wouldn't share earlier. As she flips through the stack, she notices over and over, OR8, coma, Jefferson Institute. There's another knock at the door, and the voice beyond claims to be security, but is clearly a different voice than the man who just let her in here. To test him, she asks the score in reference to the game the previous guard was listening to on the radio, and the new guard doesn't catch her meaning. I, I mean, if somebody asked me that, like if What's I was a killer, if I was a killer, and I was trying to get in, gain access to a room, and somebody somebody asked me an innocuous question, like like, well, oh, what's the score? I'd say two to six. <laughs> yeah. Open the goddamn door. 
But he was listening to a football game, so two to six doesn't make any sense. <laughs> what kind of safety? A safety and two field goals? <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't a football game. It was a horse. <laughs> <laughs> but also, if he had been security, he would have had the keys to open the door. Yeah. As the security guard did. Right. He also should have just knocked it over. She sneaks out the opposite door and races through the hospital until she bumps into another doctor named Jerry. She offers to accompany him to the medical school library for company. Somewhat coincidentally, he is paged to a phone, and Susan notices a creepy man, the same one we saw kill Kelly, following her, and has to leave Jerry at the phone to escape the assassin. No, just stay here. Yeah. Just, stay the doctor. Yeah, just stay here. You're good here. Well, unless both of them get Yeah, killed. maybe. The assassin seems to quickly lose track of Susan, who is now hiding in one of the amphitheater classrooms. She hides behind an overhead projector, and the man creeps closer and closer. Eventually, he is full speed chasing her toward the door, and she knocks him down with a blast from a fire extinguisher, and he starts to pull a gun. He follows her to a room full of cadavers under blankets, and whips all the sheets off, assuming she's hiding under one of them. Then, he moves to the adjacent freezer full of hanging bodies. We see her hiding at the back of a row of bodies, and then she starts pushing them all forward. These bodies are all hung by, yeah. like, these hooks on the sides of their heads? Mm. Yeah. Like, Just going like to the temple little, right here. It's, oh my God, it's really disturbing. Yeah. Is that actually how you hang a body I know in that's freezer? how you, sometimes they used to take babies out. <laughs> you got those little pinchy pinchers. It just, it just looks so, I don't know. It just, it, it doesn't look secure first yeah. and foremost. And, and secondly, like, it just seems like there'd be a more efficient way to do that. Yeah, just put it right through the front. It, it, is is storing them hanging like meat the most efficient way? Well, I mean, I you could like, you know, go through them like your clothes in the closet and find the one you're looking for. Right, yeah. Find the right one for you. <laughs> <laughs> That's what fits. Because <laughs> <laughs> we can't use white after Labor Day. <laughs> I'm imagining like like uh, Marie Kondo in there like, all right, we got to put all these bodies out on the table and keep the ones that you yeah, which that one bring you joy. joy? <laughs> We see her hiding at the back of a row of bodies and she starts to push them all forward. The bodies press the assassin against the wall and start falling off the racks to pile on top of him. She escapes the room and locks him in the freezer and we hard cut to her frantically explaining to Mark everything she's just been through. Unless Mark came back after he heard this story, the guy's dead, right? There's a dead guy, frozen guy in this freezer with a gun. I Everything about this cut was infuriating because I, I thought this this cut is, oh, this is after she told the police and got this guy arrested. Nope. She just went to go tell her boyfriend about she, it. She she locked the guy in the freezer, got back to her, presumably her car. Right. Drove well, all the- Well, if her car's still fucked, maybe yeah, she took a bus. She took a bus. Just to tell, I locked a guy in a freezer full of bodies. And it's I like, was right about everything. Yeah. You, and you didn't tell- anybody else about a guy in a freezer yeah this is very clear evidence that you could point to the next day and be like see the dead guy in the freezer with a gun why would he be there with that Mm -hmm. unless i was telling the truth but there's so much other circumstantial evidence like the broken door the broken window yeah he smashed all sorts of stuff trying to get to her and uh somebody's gonna find that body because uh the the villain of the story who sent this henchman doesn't know that he's locked in the freezer right. of the anatomy lab. And she can even say that the guy shot at her and they could prove that this gun has been discharged and mm-hmm. there's bullet holes in the hanging bodies in the room. I don't get this. Yeah. Th- this was, this was, I, I get. This is where you, you go to the police. Yeah. I, but they're, I, we're cutting around so fast now because it's just like, mm-hmm. uh, we, we, this is why they didn't go to the police because the next thing happened already. It's too late. She tells Mark exactly where the gas line starts and what it runs to outside of OR8, and it's unclear how many of her words he's even understanding. She says the switch box appears to be radio-controlled to turn the CO line on and off on demand. He convinces her to take a nap and get relaxed so they can make sense of this together. He says that he'll prepare some tea for her, and then in the kitchen, he calls someone to announce that she's here and he'll hold on to her as long as he can. He says this way too loud, though, and she overhears it and sneaks out. Then we cut to her waking up in a panic somewhere, either her own home or a hotel room where she wouldn't immediately be found. I assume she's at a hotel. Yeah, I think she is. She calls the hospital to get her messages, but the operator demands a number to reach her at, and she hangs up and leaves for her Tuesday morning tour of the Jefferson Institute. It's a full care facility for coma patients. During visitation, the patients are placed in a typical hospital-type room, but otherwise they are stored in an open warehouse suspended from the ceiling by wires that are literally run through their long bones Mm -hmm. to prevent bed sores. 
The tour leader, Mrs. Emerson herself, claims that no staff is needed because everyone's vitals are monitored by computer. These are real actors suspended by rather flimsy cables from the ceiling. When the camera wasn't rolling, platforms were raised up from beneath them because they could only hang comfortably for about six minutes at a time. Ugh. The scene had to be shot twice, once with topless patients for the theatrical release and again with clothed patients for the TV broadcast. Mm. The facility is currently equipped to house as many as a thousand patients for an actual cost of $5 a day. Of course, they would presumably charge insurance companies much more than that. Susan sneaks out of the tour group to explore more of the institute. Emerson returns to her office to act as an auctioneer for an illegal organ auction on the phone. We have a left kidney, two hours old, ready to ship. It's a 4367, a 31-year-old male. The bidding now stands at 42.5. Thank you. And we intercut this with Susan stumbling upon the body of Sean Murphy, the Tom Selleck character, being stripped for parts while two doctors box up his organs and recite the going prices of each one. She ducks into a locker room and overhears two men talk about how the organs are going to millionaires' kids because Dr. George has connections to high society. So I, I, I want to question the the business plan here. Yeah. Okay, so presumably, because they're like, oh, we can house like a thousand bodies, it's five dollars mm -hmm. a day. Like, they're, they're planning to ship a whole bunch of bodies that go into a coma, presumably because they... It's an organ farm. The... Right, the families want to keep these patients alive. Yeah, mm -hmm. wouldn't it be rather suspicious to uh, of your care facility to have them all steadily die? Well, I think the point is that they they will die eventually. Yeah, if they're if they're comatose patients and they're not expected to recover, they're being kept there for the personal feelings of the family. It's a bunch of Terry Shivos all stacked up. It's just the families are like, we're not ready to let them go yet. So you take good care of them. And we'll come see them every once in a while, and we'll only have to pay you five dollars a, you know, five dollars. Right, a, but presumably, if this is a high tech care facility, these patients live a long time. Right, but if you have a thousand of them, one is going to die every day. I I don't know, maybe I don't. And know. you I, just I, pick I, the one you need I the organs. From. I don't feel like this is a, a steady business model. It, it feels unpredictable. Well, and there, I don't know how much they're taking an account into uh, compatible types, like the, they tissue type everybody. Right, but she's just, she's just auctioning a kidney to somebody. It's like, well, is this I, I kidney thought, compatible? I think no, that's I think the what stats, the, when she said it's a yeah. 4367. I, I think that, that, was, that means that uh, it fits yeah, into yeah, yeah. a specific category. Right. Emerson and her assistant are organizing the shipping of a kidney to Zurich when security finally notices Susan wandering around the facility on their security cameras, and everyone is dispatched to arrest her at the same time. She ducks into an office with another open body on a table. Weirdly, this corpse is in clear view of the front windows of the facility, and Susan tries desperately to break the window open and escape. But, like, if you were the mailman, you'd just, like, go up and put something in the mailbox mm -hmm. and be like, what is that? Is that an open corpse? There's a <laughs> blue person in there with a <laughs> vacant chest. I'm blue and da-ba-dee-da-ba-da. <laughs> and in a second, I'll die. When security finally gets inside the room, they find the window broken and start checking the ledges outside and the grass below, but Susan is nowhere to be found. They race downstairs to catch her, and the camera floats over to a loose ceiling tile in the corner, and we see that Susan never actually left after she broke the window. She's now stowed away in the ceiling. She crawls through the ceiling area, toward the room with the hanging bodies, and then tiptoes across the ceiling above them. I'm amazed that this ceiling supports a full human's weight. Well, also, I'm amazed that there's no, uh, uh, like, on the Titanic, they, uh, Lifeboats. They, the, the walls of the ship that are supposed to go from the bottom of the ship to the top, but they didn't go all Bulkhead? the way up. Bulkheads. Thank you. Uh, usually... Things like rooms like this have bulkheads that go all the way to the ceiling to separate certain offices to give them some kind of right. privacy. Yeah. So you, you wouldn't have like the main hallway connect to individual offices. Right. Yeah, it does Especially in a medical facility. But, you know, they're not really maintaining privacy in this place, mm -hmm. I suppose. Yeah. And also those bulkheads didn't work out so great for the Titanic either. <laughs> well, well, because they didn't, they didn't finish them. It's the same guy built this place. I'm this not... building is unsinkable, damn it. I don't think so. I'm actually not surprised that it it supports it because this grid structure is what is supporting the the floating bodies in the other true. room. Yeah, so it sure. is designed to hold the weight of many many bodies. But that's true. Yeah, I, I, what bothers me is that she's wearing this full on white suit. Yeah. And she's crawling through the ceiling and she looks pristine when she comes out. Yep. Security notices a swaying body in the room, but weirdly don't look above it to see what caused the motion. An ambulance pulls up to the building with its lights flashing. They pull up to a loading dock, 
and fill the back of the ambulance with human organ transplant boxes like it's a FedEx truck. This should really be an armored car. These mm -hmm. organs are worth their weight in gold. When it's loaded, it leaves for the airport, and we see Susan is actually laying flat across the top of the ambulance, hugging the siren. Do you recall the last time somebody hid on a vehicle while inf infiltrating a facility that processes human bodies for the express purpose of sustaining other humans? Soylent Green. Yeah! Yeah. <laughs> Insanely, she returns to Boston Memorial Hospital to report her findings to Dr. Harris, assuming he is for sure not in on it, even though he's been the whole time saying, stop looking into this. Mm -hmm. Please stop. Stop. Stop, please. And, and the big reveal here was like, how did you not know yeah, yeah. the name of the head of the hospital? Yeah. He acts shocked by her story and offers to make her a drink as a reward for her findings. He says he doesn't know how to start dealing with this. Now the question is, how do we handle this? You arrest Dr. George. A call comes in and Dr. Harris takes it. Susan drinks while he speaks with a White House representative and her eyes wander around the certificates above Harris's desk. We punch in close on the first name of several certificates. George. Dr. George. Dr. George Harris. Wait, okay, hold on here. I have I have a problem with this. The only, So Dr. George is the name of the other doctor who the was... The chief hold, anesthetist. Right, who yeah. was holding... Who is not in on it. Right, right, who I assumed at this point is not in on it. Right. You know, I, I guess we don't officially know. But um, did, did somebody else tell her Dr. George was associated with this? Yeah. Did the maintenance guy tell her that? No, I think it was... Uh, doesn't Elizabeth Ashley say something on the phone about Dr. George? Where did, where did she associate, aside from the fact that she thought this guy was hiding files from her, how did she associate the concept of Dr. George being associated with the issues here? When she's hiding in the locker room at the facility and she's listening to these two guys talk about where the organs are going, one of them says, yeah, Dr. George has some really high connections Got it. And she assumes that they're talking about the anesthetist. Oh. But she should assume that they're talking about Dr. George Harris, the one who is you... constantly on the phone with the White House. Yeah, the one that you already established earlier has a well-connected wife. Well, Dr. George, the anesthetist, is the one with the oh. rich wife. Oh, yeah. okay. So that's the confusion there. I that's see. That's why she thought she was thinking about this guy, but it's, she's actually mistaking him for the other Dr. George. By the time he hangs up, she's already feeling the effects of whatever he slipped into her drink, and he gives up the charade. He tells her that she's too young to properly evaluate right and wrong. When you're older, everything is complicated. There is no black and white, only gray. But our society faces momentous decisions. Decisions about the right to die about abortion, about terminal illness, prolonged coma, transplantation, decisions about life and death. But society isn't deciding. Congress isn't deciding. The courts aren't deciding. Religion isn't deciding. Why? Because society is leaving it up to us, the experts, the doctors. She finally passes out from the drug, and he picks up the phone to schedule an emergency appendectomy in OR8. Susan is still very disoriented as she gets wheeled to the doomed OR. Eventually, she sees Mark's face above her, and he tells her that she should never have snuck out of his apartment, and her mother is worried sick, implying that was her on the phone while he was making tea. She tries to tell Mark what's happening, but he still thinks that she's actually getting an appendectomy and is just hallucinating from the pain. Mark, check my white count and saturate. It's normal. He looks at her chart, but those numbers aren't here. It's better to be safe and have the operation. Oh. Besides, you're in the best of hands. Mark. Dr. Harris himself is going to do the procedure, huh? How about that? The chief of surgery is going to take your case. Dr. Harris arrives, and Mark reports her apparent delirium. A nurse says the OR is ready. Dr. Harris, we have OR7 ready for your case. I wanted OR8. Well, they're just finishing up in there. It isn't ready yet. I specifically requested OR8. It'll take a couple of minutes. Well, hurry it up. Our patient can't wait all night, can she? Mark is fixated on this comment, and Susan reaches out to tap Mark's pager to give him an excuse to step away. He lies to Harris that a patient is having convulsions and he's needed elsewhere. Susan's frantic description of the gas line replays in his head as he runs down the hall hoping to save her. In OR8, x-rays are brought in, and Harris remarks how perfectly invisible appendicitis is on an x-ray. One of the surgeons assisting Dr. Harris makes a remarkably useless observation. She has an innie. A what? An innie. 
The belly button. Some are innies, some are outies. Hers is an innie. First of all, who cares? 90% of people have innies. It's like saying, oh weird, she's right-handed. And secondly, how has Dr. Harris never heard of innies or outies? Well, <laughs> but this also, I guess, goes into the conversations like the inappropriate conversations that people have it's just just like it felt like such a weird left field thing it's like oh we need something to say here and they just like wrote something on the fly there mark gets into the maintenance area rushes to the ladder where he finds her pantyhose and climbs alongside the pipe he finally finds the switch box that susan mentioned and he tears out one of the wires and starts bashing the box against the wall in anger but this is important evidence he probably yeah. shouldn't be doing this also you don't know for sure that you turned it off yeah you could be turning it on yeah this whole time you could have just taken that pipe off so mm-hmm. that this right? this line was disconnected <laughs> just imagine he cuts the cuts the thing and it's actually the oxygen line by mm-hmm. mistake yeah yeah Kills her anyways the whole yeah. room explodes Harris pretends to suddenly realize that no appendectomy is needed and wraps up the surgery. The anesthesiologist is concerned for a moment when Susan doesn't regain consciousness, and Harris assures the man he just needs to give her a second. Harris is facing away from the patient when Susan wakes up with big choking breaths, and a look of horror washes over his face when he realizes that somehow the carbon monoxide was not administered as planned. (coughs) She's okay, sir. She's just fine, Dr. Harris. She's wheeled out of the room, and when they push through the double doors, we see Mark waiting just outside with a pair of police officers. Mark walks with Susan down the hall and reassures her that everything is okay now. The cops call Dr. Harris out of OR8, and we cut to black for credits. The end. I like it. Thumbs up. Yeah, I'd give it a thumbs up. I I enjoyed it. I think that... uh... You know, I really, I really enjoyed her as a as a character. Generally, doing things that I appreciate, not doing stupid things. Aside right. from not telling authorities in that one case, otherwise she generally acts the way I'm like, okay, I'm gonna just look into this because everyone thinks I'm crazy. Yeah, it is an unfortunate subject for a movie in that it it probably did convince a lot of people to stay away from the hospital, but maybe that was for the better. I don't know. <laughs> Depends on the hospital, I guess. I uh, I really liked it. Um, uh, I it was a lot very suspenseful. Um, I didn't didn't really feel the length. Yeah, like, no. Like it I, moved, I think it yeah, goes pretty right along. There's a couple of good moments, like uh, the the moment when they're on the elevator together with Doctor jo- with the uh, fake Doctor George. Yeah. And I was like, oh, like because like you don't know what's happening. Right. But then you just realize later that nothing's happening. He just doesn't like her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, uh, the body, the body's stacking up on the bad guy. That's that's pretty solid scene. Yeah, and I like the early turns from Ed Harris and uh, and uh, Tom Selleck in yeah. here. Our writer director was Michael Crichton. He previously directed Westworld and after this, The Great Train Robbery '78, Looker, Runaway, The Thirteenth Warrior, and Timeline. He wrote the novels adapted into The Andromeda Strain, Westworld, The Terminal Man, The Great Train Robbery, Jurassic Park, Congo Sphere, and The Thirteenth Warrior. And he also created television series ER with Spielberg. Novelist Robin Cook, this was the first of his novels to be adapted, and the second was Sphinx, which we've already covered on the show. Most recently, he was credited in the 2012 Coma miniseries. The music here came from Jerry Goldsmith. He was the composer of the first James Bond adaptation climax episode, Casino Royale, in 1954. He also scored In Like Flint, This, The Boys from Brazil, The Swarm, Star Trek The Motion Picture, Magic, Alien, and then for Joe Dante, Gremlins 1 and 2, Explorers, Interspace, Matinee, The Burbs. He also did The Secret of Nim, Ghost in the Darkness. So far, we've discussed his work on The Ballad of Cable Hogue, Escape from the Planet of the Apes, Cabo Blanco, Omen 3, Outland, and Raggedy Man. Uh, the movie is mostly scoreless for, like, the first half. Right, yeah. Like, it's it's there's almost no music at all, with the exception of the one bit of music while they're doing the first surgery. Yeah, and then we start to get score every time, like, we're hitting a twist mm-hmm. in the story. The cinematographer here was Victor J. Kemper. He lit Husbands, They Might Be Giants, Dog Day Afternoon, Slapshot, Oh God, and Magic. So far on the show, he has DP'd Night of the Juggler, The Final Countdown, Xanadu, The Four Seasons, and Choo Choo and the Philly Flash. Later, he lights Mr. Mom, National Lampoon's Vacation, Cloak and Dagger, Pee-wee's Big Adventure, Clue, Beethoven, Tommy Boy, Jingle All the Way. The editor here was David Bretherton. He edited Cabaret, Slither, Westworld, and so far on the show, It's My Turn, also starring Michael Douglas, and later, The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas, Baby, Secret of the Lost Legend, and Clue. 
Genevieve Bujold played Dr. Susan Wheeler. The earliest thing I've seen from her is a movie called King of Hearts in 1966, which was recommended to me by a friend of the show, Julia W.D. Harrison, and is completely adorable. Highly recommend. She was also nominated for Best Actress after her turn in 1970's Anne of the Thousand Days. She shows up in Earthquake, Last Flight of Noah's Ark, and Dead Ringers. Michael Douglas played Dr. Mark Bellows. We've seen him so far only in It's My Turn, though we've had his dad Kirk a bunch of times. Saturn 3, Home Movies, The Final Countdown, The Fury. Michael Douglas plays Detective Nick Coran in Basic Instinct, Dan Gallagher in Fatal Attraction, Gordon Gecko in Wall Street. We won't see him again till the Star Chamber in 83, but he follows that up with Romancing the Stone and Jewel of the Nile. Also, in The American President, Ghost in the Darkness, The Game, Wonder Boys, Traffic. He currently portrays the original Ant-Man Hank Pym for the Marvel Cinematic Universe. He was in a 2003 film with his father and son called It Runs in the Family. He also stars in another Crichton adaptation in 1994 for Disclosure. He has two Oscars, one for producing Cuckoo's Nest and one for acting in Wall Street. Elizabeth Ashley played Mrs. Emerson. We've seen her so far as the psychopathic killer in Windows and Sophia Thatcher in Paternity. And before that, we've mentioned her credits in the first season of Russian Doll. And she was also the governor in Mallrats for a deleted scene. Rip Torn played Dr. George. He's Zed in Men in Black. He's Tom Green's dad in Freddy Got Fingered. Arthur on The Larry Sanders Show. Patches O'Houlihan and Dodgeball. We've seen him so far in One Trick Pony and First Family, and he was nominated for Best Actor in 1984 for Cross Creek. Richard Woodmark played Dr. George Harris. He was named Howard Stark in the book, but they changed it. I don't know if for comic <laughs> book reasons, but that is Tony Stark's dad's name. His first credit was for 1947's Kiss of Death, for which he was nominated for Best Supporting Actor. Do you guys recall the last time we mentioned Kiss of Death? Starring Richard Widmark. No. Fade to Black. Mm. Eric Binford reads the film's top billing to his dying aunt slash mom after he shoves her down the stairs to their place. 20th Century Fox presents Kiss of Death. Starring Victor Mature, Brian Donlevy, Colleen Gray. <laughs> With Richard Widmark. More recently to this film, he appeared in 1974's Murder on the Orient Express and Roller Coaster. Lois Childs played Nancy Greenlee. Before this, she was in The Way We Were and The Great Gatsby. Later, she's in Death on the Nile. She's Holly Goodhead in Moonraker, Annie in Creepshow 2's Hitchhiker segment, and Diane's mother in Say Anything. Harry Rhodes played Dr. Moreland. He was in Conquest of the Planet of the Apes, Detroit 9000, and we'll see him next as Highball Mary in Sharky's Machine. Richard Doyle played Jim. He was the eventual father-in-law of Woody Harrelson's Woody Boyd character on Cheers. Alan Hufrecht played Dr. Marcus. He's Chuck Strell in 9 to 5 and announcer in Halloween 2. Lance Legault was Vince. That's the assassin character. We've seen him so far as Edgar Wambuck in Amy and Colonel Glass in Stripes. He's also Colonel Drecker in 20 episodes of The A-Team. Betty McGuire played a nurse. She's a neighbor in The Incredible Shrinking Woman. She's also the bird lady in that MacGyver episode where he commits jury tampering over and over again. <laughs> You remember that one? Yeah. He tries to solve the murder by like going to the scene of the crime afterwards. Right, it's right. Like, what are you doing? You can't do this, jury member MacGyver. Tom Selleck played Sean Murphy. He was spotted in a commercial for Salem Cigarettes to land this role. This is, amazingly, our first look at Selleck on the show. He obviously blew up as Magnum P.I., or we would have discussed his work in Raiders of the Lost Ark last year. Later, he shows up in Three Men and a Baby, Quigley Down Under, Mr. Baseball, Friends, and most recently as the patriarch of the Blue Bloods family in 275 episodes of that series. He comes back for another Crichton adaptation, Runaway, in 1984. Charles Siebert played Dr. Goodman. He's Nevins in All Night Long, and he was also Poseidon and Sisyphus on Xena Warrior Princess. Joni Palmer played Dance Instructor. She was credited as Granddaughter in The Postman Always Rings Twice and Churchgoer in Blues Brothers so far on the show. Joanna Kearns played Diane. She was Annette in Girl Interrupted and Katherine Heigl's mom in Knocked Up. Benny Rubin played Mr. Schwartz. He was Pruneface in 42 episodes of the early 60s Dick Tracy. David Hollander played Jimmy. We've seen him so far in Small Circle of Friends, Airplane, and he was just George in Amy. Mike Lally played Security Man. He's in 27 episodes of Columbo as 27 different characters. Michael Mann played Second Technician, not that Michael Mann, and he also shows up in Smokey and the Bandit and Every Which Way But Loose. Serena C. Grant played Woman in Elevator. She was a hooker in The Howling. 
Ed Harris is pathology resident number two. This was his first role and the only one before 1981's Borderline, which we've also covered on the show. Obviously, he comes back to another Crichton adaptation in the form of HBO's Westworld down the line. We saw him last in George Romero's Night Riders about people riding motorcycles in full plate mail. He's John Glenn in The Right Stuff, Bud Brigman in The Abyss, Gene Krantz in Apollo 13, he's Kristoff in The Truman Show, Jackson Pollock in Pollock, and very recently he appeared in Top Gun sequel Maverick. He's been nominated for four Oscars now, supporting for Apollo 13, Truman Show, and The Hours, and Best Actor for Pollock. Martin Spear played Surgical Resident. He was Doug Woods in The Hills Have Eyes. Jason Bernard played Surgical Resident. He was Captain Newt in War Games. Gerald Burns played a security guard. He was Bo Flynn in Penitentiary 2 and Jeff Gregg in The Net. Philip Baker Hall played a doctor in here. I did not see him. I, I thought I saw him, but it, it's so hard to say because yeah. it, it, I've only ever known him old. Yeah. Um, he's Jimmy Gator in Magnolia. He's Floyd Gondoli in Boogie Nights. He's Sidney in Heart 8, Father Calloway in the Amityville remake, Sheriff Chambers in Gus Van Zandt's Psycho, the good one. And we saw him last as the doctor who operated on the man with Bogart's face. Edward C. Higgins played security guard number two. He was a coroner in night school. And Nicholas Wirth played Patterson Institute Chief of Security, uncredited. He was the killer in Don't Answer the Phone and Polly in Darkman. I think that's everything for Coma. Thanks again to Louis Letizia for their generous contribution to the show. If you have any thoughts you'd like to share, you can find all our socials at linktree slash vintage video pod. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing whatever you chose. We leave you now with the trailer for Coma. Where is the patient? Coming right down, Dr. Cohen. You enter a major metropolitan hospital for routine surgery. What's the matter? I don't know. Something goes wrong. She never woke up. No. What if it wasn't an accident? Now, the number one best-selling mystery becomes the most thrilling suspense film of the year. Javier Bougeau is Dr. Susan Wheeler. Been about a dozen of these coma cases here in the last year. They're always different. Hard to imagine it's murder. Are you sure? Susan. What do you think? There's a conspiracy at the Boston Memorial Hospital? I'm fine. I don't need to shrink. But I think it's important to have on the record. She's under stress. A little paranoid. Well, she thinks there's a conspiracy. Does she think uh, you're involved? Michael Douglas is Dr. Mark Bellows. No. No, I don't think so. First rule of crime. Keep it simple. Somebody is putting people into comas. They're murdering them. It's a 4-3-6-7. The bidding now stands at 42-5. A 31-year-old male. At Boston Memorial Hospital, only one doctor can save your life. But first, she's got to save her own. Somebody's seen too much. What's the matter? I don't know what the matter is. Somebody's gone too far. Somebody's getting away with murder. 